This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the June 4th, 1942 broadcast of the CBS Morning News. It includes updates on the war in Europe and the Pacific, including a live feed from London, plus news from the home front. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick of Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad for the news of the world on Thursday, June 4th. Today, we shall call in London and Washington and attempt to get you a report direct by shortwave radio from Australia. In addition, Harry Marble will give you the latest developments from points not covered by our direct pickups. But first, here is the situation in brief. The entire West Coast is on the alert after the two raids yesterday on Dutch Harbor in Alaska. More submarine activity is reported from the Southwest Pacific. In China, Japanese forces are still on the offensive in Chekiang province and are close to the air base of Chuchao. And now for more news and to call in Columbia's correspondents abroad, here is Harry Marble. Before calling in London, here are the latest developments in Russia. The Soviet communique issued at midnight Russian time reported the repulse of a new Nazi attack on the Kalinin sector northwest of Moscow, which is interpreted by correspondents in the Russian capital as a hint of a possible large-scale German offensive in this area. The official communique said merely that 200 of the enemy had been killed and three tanks destroyed. But other reports reaching London said that fierce fighting was still in progress on the Kalinin front. Farther to the west, around Leningrad, the Russians are believed to have improved their position. There are no fresh reports of fighting around Kharkov in the Ukraine or in the Crimea. Our first report, direct from overseas this morning, comes from the British capital. We take you now to London. CBS London, Charles Collingwood reporting. British commandos raided the coast of occupied France again last night. While their chief, Lord Louis Mountbatten, was in Washington, British special service troops, as they prefer to be called, jumped ashore in the Boulogne-Lutuque area, 26 miles across the channel from the cliffs of Folkestone. The British are emphasizing that this raid was a minor affair. They went over to get information, and they came back with it. Valuable information, the communique says. There were only slight casualties among the British landing force. British fighters covered the operation and protected the return. While this was going on, a strong force of British bombers attacked the great German port of Bremen. The weather was good, and Bremen was heavily bombed. British fighters attacked enemy air drones, 
and lay in wait for German bombers coming back from a small raid on a town in the south of England. These fighters, hovering over the German airdrome, shot down four of the small German raiding force. A fifth was shot down over England. The British lost 10 bombers out of maybe two or 300 on the attack on Bremen, and they lost two of the fighters which were out during the night. This morning has brought no news of any spectacular development in the fighting in Libya. The fighting there is going on under nightmarish, surrealist conditions. The worst sandstorm that men can remember has covered the battle area with a blinding, gritty pall of dust and sand. Today's communique says that British tanks have taken a strong point about six miles west of Knightsbridge. They knocked out 14 Axis tanks doing it. The Free French down in Beer Hackheim, which include a battalion of the French Foreign Legion, have repulsed another Axis attack. Here in Britain, the outstanding domestic event is the announcement of the government's coal plan. This plan will be debated in the House of Commons next week and it may well set off one of the most pyrotechnic debates of the war. Briefly, this is what the government coal plan provides. The government will take over the whole responsibility for the operations and output of the mines. This is what Britain's Labor Party has been pressing for ever since the coal problem became acute. On the other hand, the government's plan expressly disclaims any interference with the financial structure of the coal industry. In other words, the mine owners will still get the profits from the coal which is produced under government control. Now that's a concession to the conservatives and to the mine owners. You see the lines along which the conflict will develop. The government apparently intends to make this a matter of confidence. That is, it will stake its political life on the success of its plan. Now, this present parliament will not vote against the government on matters of strategy or war conduct, but on domestic issues, it will take and has taken a strong stand. Something like this coal issue, which brings out into the open the basic differences between conservatives and socialists, and the Labor Party is theoretically a socialist party, this coal issue is the sort of thing on which the government might be outvoted. That was London. Next, across the Southwest Pacific. After a brief pause, we take you to Australia. This is CBS calling Australia. Go ahead, Australia. This is CBS calling Australia. Go ahead, Australia. We regret that we cannot make contact with our correspondent in Australia. We return you now to Columbia in New York. And here in CBS World News Headquarters in New York, are the latest press association dispatches from Australia and the Southwest Pacific. Word comes from Melbourne that Japan, opening submarine warfare on the vital sea lane between Australia and the United States, has sunk an Allied ship, General Douglas MacArthur announced today, but he countered with the news that an Allied submarine had sunk two enemy supply ships and a 6,000-ton troop transport. MacArthur gave no details of the Allied submarine success. The Japanese submarines, opening a direct campaign against the vital steamship lanes off the southeast Australian coast, 
attacked two small cargo ships 35 miles east of Sydney, where midget submarines penetrated Sydney Harbor Sunday night and attacked a third ship 225 miles south of Sydney. A second communique said that one of the ships was sunk, but the others escaped undamaged. Prime Minister John Curtin told the Parliament at Canberra at the same time that four midget submarines entered Sydney Harbor in the Sunday night attack, and all four had been sunk. Only one, he said, was able to make an attack, and it sank a small harbor depot ship, a former ferry boat. The ship attacked 225 miles south of Sydney was off the southeast corner of the Australian coast, the area where nearly all of the population of the continent is centered and on the direct shipping lane to Melbourne. Melbourne lies 330 airline miles to the west on the south coast. Every Australian realized that the attack meant the war had been brought a long step toward the heart of Australia. It seemed certain that the midget submarines which attacked Sydney Sunday, if only to prove the strength of its defenses, had been launched from a mother ship which lay perhaps 200 miles off the coast. Now from Chongqing, we hear that reinforced Japanese troops supported by intense artillery and aerial bombardment converged on Chusian from three directions today. Front dispatches conceded that the Chinese position was increasingly grave. Only 700 miles west of Japan, Chusian is the site of a key eastern China airfield and an important rail center on the Chekyang Kiang Sea line. From the vicinity of captured Jinhua, Chekyang province capital, the Japanese were sending reinforcements northwestward and westward to supplement units already menacing Chusian's outskirts. A Chongqing communique said the offensive was renewed yesterday morning and the Chinese garrison was fiercely resisting. That is the news from Australia and from China. Now for the latest developments and news from our own nation's capital, we take you to Washington. CBS Washington, John Purcell reporting. The Pacific coast of North America, from Alaska to the Panama Canal, is on the lookout today for further Japanese attacks against this continent. As you know, Jap bombers and fighters twice raided the naval base at Dutch Harbor yesterday. Whether these raids constitute a reprisal attack for the humiliating bombing of Tokyo or portend more severe blows is a matter for speculation. But at any rate, military authorities are taking no chances. All leaves have been canceled in the Panama Canal zone. The Western Defense Command has asked the public to report any Japanese in American Army uniforms and to assume that they might be fifth columnists. All radios along the coast from Mexico to Canada and throughout British Columbia were silenced last night. There was nothing surprising about yesterday's raids. They were sudden, and perhaps that had a startling effect. But the President and Secretary of War Stimson had predicted that Alaska would be bombed from the air. The first raid did little damage, a few casualties and some warehouses set on fire. We have no details of the second attack, but probably we'll have additional reports later in the day. Apparently, the Japs did not escape with a whole skin. Referring to what he called the anticipated air raid, Governor Gruning of Alaska reported, our Army and Navy are rendering an excellent account of themselves. And in Seattle, Washington, Rear Admiral Freeman said after the first raid that this attack was not a surprise and the station was prepared to meet it. There is considerable speculation here in military circles as to the Jap motives behind their aerial assaults. Some believe that they were in reprisal for the bombing of Tokyo. Others say that the Japs may be testing our Alaskan defenses, preparatory to an attack against the American continent. That with the Southwest Pacific area comparatively quiet, the Japs may be shifting their campaign to the north. 
and possibly strike a two-pronged blow at Russian Siberia and the Aleutian Islands. Or perhaps the enemy was attempting to knock out bases from which this country could raid Tokyo. At any rate, the sweeping curve of Aleutian Islands hangs like the sword of Damocles over the jittery Japanese mainland. And in the fall of 1940, when the Pacific situation was becoming ominous, the United States rushed preparations to strengthen the island chain. If the Japs intend to launch a major campaign, they have almost two months of good flying weather. Summer fogs regularly blanket the islands in late July and August. Against this background, plans are being sped here in the capital to double the size of the United States fleet by more than 500 fighting ships. The House Naval Affairs Committee is considering an $8 billion program to double the size of the fleet. It calls for the construction of 500,000 tons of aircraft carriers, the same tonnage for light and heavy cruisers, 900,000 tons of destroyers, and 800 smaller craft for patrol duty. No provisions are made for battleships. The emphasis is on plane carriers and fast fighting ships. This is John Purcell in Washington, returning you to CBS in New York. The official German news agency, as well as the Vichy news agency, Hava, reported today that Reinhard Heydrich, number two leader of the Gestapo, died in Czechoslovakia as the result of a bullet wound inflicted by assassins in Prague eight days ago. At the same time, it was reported in London today that the Gestapo has now executed a total of 202 Czechs in reprisal for the attack on Heydrich. The Prague radio said that 25 more hostages were put to death yesterday in the capital and at Brunn. Heydrich, who was deputy to Heinrich Himmler in the Gestapo and also had the title of protector of Bohemia and Moravia or Czechoslovakia, was known to Europe's oppressed millions as a hangman. He was 38 years old, a blonde German with a cruel, straight-lipped mouth. Even before his assassination, if the German report of his death is true, Heydrich was earmarked by the British for post-war punishment because of the way in which he had executed men and women in the German-held nations of Europe. A significant development is reported this morning from Vichy, France, where Chief of Government Laval is said to have placed the National Gendarmerie or police force under his own direction, thus removing it from the jurisdiction of Admiral Dalin. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.